I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music feuds, beefs, and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And we have a very highly requested rivalry today, which is funny because it's one of the tamer feuds, really, when you think about it. You know, there are some feuds where blood is shed, lawsuits are filed, and teenage daughters are mentioned in really ungallant ways, but this is not one of those feuds. I would argue this is probably one of the most passive feuds we ever have done. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, this was a big one for me growing up, although I feel like it might be difficult to explain to future generations. By the way, we're talking about Smashing Pumpkins versus Pavement, a battle of 90s indie rock versus 90s alternative rock, which I feel like if you're under the age of 30, you would just use those terms interchangeably. Like, it's hard to understand, like, why these bands were even feuding, because I feel like if you like one of these bands now... You probably like the other one. Uh, But back in the 90s, there was this idea of selling out Jordan, where you didn't want to be a sellout. You wanted to be someone who didn't sell out. And this caused a lot of consternation between different bands back then. And you could say that this rivalry signifies that debate better than any other. Well, without further ado, let's dive into this mess. It all starts with William Patrick Corgan Jr. And, you know, if Abe Froman is the sausage king of Chicago, then Billy Corgan is the resentment king of Chicago. Yes, he's, he's a resentment sausage. <laughs> he's just, he's one of the biggest tryhards in rock, which is, you know, I say that like it's a bad thing and it's not. It's actually something that really endears him to me. It's 1994 and he's resentful and he's got his reasons. He's resentful because there's a strange dad who's a really talented musician. He played with bands like Rufus and I think he was offered Ted Nugent's spot in the Amboy Dukes. Um, really talented guy. He never gave young Billy the time of day as a kid, never really fostered his, his musical talent and encouraged him in the way that he could have. So he's resentful of that. Bad dads were bad dads were endemic to 90s rock. They existed right. everywhere in 90s rock. If you had a bad dad, you could get a record deal in the 1990s. That's how <laughs> that's how many bad dads there were. I said, you really thought of that. You're right. I mean, so he's resentful of his dad. That's 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 the bedrock. He's resentful of all the coastal bands that he thinks looks down on him because he's from the Midwest, from Chicago. He resents sort of the good-looking alt-rock gods like Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder, and even this sort of complex relationship with the late Kurt Cobain, who he sings in Heavy Metal Machine, If I Were Dead, Would My Records Sell? I always thought he was kind of this weird little dance with, with, with sort of the ghost of Kurt. And then he has more active feuds, too, with Steve Albini and Kim Gordon. But for our intensive purposes in this episode, he resents the effortless California cool of Stephen Malcolmus and the blend of not only critical acclaim, but underground cred he can enjoy as a member of Pavement. And for Billy, this just takes him right back to being the uncool kid in high school. He's in his room learning Black Sabbath riffs. It, 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 it's, it's really hard on him. And that's just 
I think the tragedy of Billy's career, incredibly successful career, I might add, because it's like an Aesop's fable. Here's somebody who wants so badly to just be accepted that he resolves to make the greatest rock album ever made. And I'm going to make the most beautiful melodies ever in hopes that it'll make people like me. They'll see me. I'll work so hard on this thing. It's going to be great. It'll make people happy and love me. And it's irrational. You know, you're setting yourself for a disappointment if you ever have a goal like that, if you ever approach anything like that. But he succeeds several times over with Siamese Dream, Melancholy, Infinite Sadness. And instead of winning the acceptance that he craves, his just sort of overblown earnestness and the scope of his ambition makes him this object of like mockery and scorn by all the sort of like hip elite and all these people that he thinks are cooler than him. Well, yeah, and that's the thing with Billy Corgan. There's always this hip elite the shadowy cabal of cool people who is conspiring <laughs> against him. And, you know, you used the word tragedy of his career before. And I think it is a tragedy in the sense of like not being able to appreciate what you have, because by any other rubric, Billy Corgan is one of the most successful rock stars of the last 30 years. He's written songs that have been on the radio. that were big hits. That were big MTV hits. He has sold millions of records. He's played sold out tours and arenas all around the world. It's the career that most musicians aspire to and, and will never achieve. And yet there's this constant sense of grievance that he has that people aren't respecting him enough, that he's not getting uh, the acclaim from the tastemakers that he feels that he deserves. And as you watch his career unfold, you can see that this perspective starts to extend beyond just how he looks at the music world. It actually takes on the predominant view of how he sees everything and he ends up making this journey from, you know, talking about how, you know, Kim Gordon doesn't respect me enough in the pages of spin in like the early nineties to the early 2010s where he's actually going, going on Alex Jones to complain about how the media is controlling people's minds and like, you know, castrating men and all of the sort of zany, wacky things that you hear Alex Jones say, and Billy Corgan is shaking his head in agreement with him. And it really shows like how when you have this worldview that everyone is against me all the time, it can curdle into stuff that's like actually harmful, you know, like where you're not just talking about pavement anymore. Now you're talking about like things that actually matter. Uh, and that's been Billy Corgan's trajectory uh, over the past, you know, 25, 30 years. In a lot of ways, he reminds me of another Billy, Billy Joel. He's someone with a huge amount of talent. And he wants to make great art that's accessible and enjoyable to most people. But he thinks he's just like being penalized for having these populist aims by cultural commentators who thinks that these efforts are, you know, shallow or even on some level like evil, evil sellout kind of things that disqualify him from serious critical consideration, which, you know... How much of that is true and how much of it is not is up for debate. But I think the core of his problem is he is his own image problem. The amount that he kind of complains and is open up about his, his you know, his grievances about what he, the, the credit that he's not given, I think is something that kind of makes him unpleasant, ends up bringing more of that on himself. Right. And, you know, the word that you used before, I think is very telling, like penalize, you know, like that is totally the worldview of someone like Billy Corgan, that I am being punished for reaching so many people that like I write songs that millions of people like, and now I can't get any, any respect for it. When again, in reality, he is not being penalized. He's actually being richly rewarded for being a populist <laughs> rocker. And the fact of the matter is, is that when you get to that level of being, you know, as famous as Billy Corgan was certainly in the nineties, you're going to have some people who don't like you. I mean, that's just part of reality. And, you know, th yeah, the cost of, of being adored by millions of people is that there will be some very loud vocal critics who can't stand you and can't stand you in part because you're everywhere. Your ubiquity itself becomes annoying to a lot of people. Um, I also think, too, like with, with Corgan, his Midwesternness to me is so fascinating. And I think it has a lot to do with how he sees the world. And it's really, I think the thing that I most relate to with Billy Corgan, I think you know, another reason why I think he's so interesting is that I do um, see myself somewhat in, in how he views the world. And I think it has to do with being from the Midwest and having that chip on your shoulder that you have when you grow up in flyover country 
and you're told in the media that you're not as hip or cool or into it as people on the coast. And why are they getting all the attention and why aren't we getting enough attention? And that's just such a endemic uh, feeling, I think, in the Midwest. And, and Billy Corgan just, just displays that through and through. I, I'll say that, you know, I'll admit to relating to Billy Corgan, but I feel like it's like the worst parts of myself. And I feel like I look at Billy Corgan and I'm like, well, if I actually believe that stuff too much, like I could end up like that. So he, he is like a cautionary <laughs> uh, tale in a, a way. But I mean, I feel like, I mean, you're not from the Midwest, but I feel like you also kind of relate to Billy Corgan in a way. Right. Oh, definitely. The whole try hard thing, again, is something that makes me really love him because I feel the same way. I'm, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to work really hard on it. It's going to make people happy and they're going to like me. That's well, it's, they're going to like me and it's going to be great. And then whenever you approach anything from that perspective, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And, you know, when you don't get the reaction you crave, which, you know, by the way, is completely unrealistic and will never happen, then you just get resentful as all hell. And like people can sense that too. And yeah, it's just this awful cycle. So no, I, I feel bad for the amount of effort that he, that he puts out and that he feels just on that emotional level. He's not rewarded in that way. And all he wants is to be liked and he wants to make a good thing and work really hard on the good thing. And in the nineties, you know, when sort of being disaffected and aloof is, is sort of the pinnacle of cool, trying really, really hard is not cool. And I, I, I feel, I feel for that. I relate to that. Now, you'll notice that we haven't really talked about Stephen Malkmus at all <laughs> so far in this episode. <laughs> and I mean, I, and I think Ten that's because in. it's fair to say that this rivalry, while it started, I guess, because of what Stephen Malkmus did, it really is only about Billy Corgan, right? I mean, because right. it, it, it basically, you know, Pavement, they put out this song, Range Life, in 1994, and then Billy Corgan just ends up reacting to it for like the next 25 years. Right. And Malcolmus is basically like, I, I didn't mean it to be that big of a deal. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I, I feel like the name of this episode could have really been like Billy Corgan versus the mean voices in Billy Corgan's head. You know, he's <laughs> right. just like shadow boxing this one line from a pavement song that could kind of sort of maybe be construed as like a slight dig from a guy who kind of has a history of dishing out slight digs. You know, I mean, one of my favorite Malcolmus songs is The Unseen Power of the Picket Fence, which he's talking about. R.E.M., his love for R.E.M., and he mentions not once but twice the song on their album that he likes the least, time after time. So I just feel like he's writing a song about a band that he he professes to love, and he's talking about the song that he likes least from them. That just kind of lets you know, you know, he's, he's kind of irreverent. Like, it's not it's not a big deal. But for Billy, it's a very big deal. But I, yeah, I don't think Malcolm in 1994 or now cared about it a fraction as much as Billy Corgan ever did. And while that's all true, I think what makes this such an interesting rivalry to me, and I wrote about this rivalry in my book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, so I've been thinking about this for a long time, is that even though Stevie Malcolmus isn't really an active participant, he is a really interesting contrast to Billy Corgan. Because, you know, as you've said, he's this try-hard, very ambitious, grandiose type person. He's from the Midwest. There's an insecurity that's inherent in him. Uh, he tends to see people out to get him because of that. And then you have someone like Malcolmus, who is, you know, he was born in Santa Monica, California. He has a real West Coast vibe to him. There's an easygoingness to him. He's a really good looking guy. He's a guy that I actually think does work really hard, but because of his casual demeanor, he has this slacker image. Like it's, he has the image of being someone who writes a song falling out of bed in the morning, you know, and like <laughs> records it in five minutes and it ends up sounding great and the critics love it. And you could see how that sort of artist would drive Billy Corgan mad because he's trying so much harder and he's showing you how much harder he's working and he's not getting that specific kind of gratification from people. So just in terms of their personality types, I think it's a really interesting conversation to have, but we should talk about range life because it is the inciting incident in this rivalry. And I referenced it earlier and uh, it's a song, like I said, it came out in 1994 It was on the album crooked rain, crooked rain, which was the second pavement record. And it was really the first one that had like a mainstream impact. And the line about smashing pumpkins in the song was actually improvised in the studio or, or it was come up like pretty much at the last minute. Um, and it was intended just to make the other guys in the band laugh, which it did. Like, they laughed hysterically at this line. And what he sings is, 
out on tour with the Smashing Pumpkins, nature kids, they don't have no function. I don't understand what they mean, and I could really give a fuck. <laughs> okay, so he calls them nature kids. He implies that, you know, they're this empty band. And he doesn't really care about them. And then there's another reference to uh, alt-rock, huge band of the time, Stone Temple Pilots. And I guess this is a diss, but I always thought it was actually kind of a cool phrase. He calls them elegant bachelors. Like, would you be insulted? I, mean, I would if, not be mad at that. Yeah, I was going to say, I wouldn't be insulted if someone called me an elegant bachelor. I mean, it's definitely kind of snarky, but I don't know. It, it, there's a beauty to it, too, that I think actually sounds pretty cool. I mean, you call someone an elegant anything, and it, like, I don't know, it, it just sounds so much more poetic and good. I also think it's a much better name, like a better band name than Stone Temple Pilots, too, like the Elegant Bachelors. <laughs> right, I, I, absolutely. They, they should have, like, changed the name right after that song. Um, but anyway, they put this line in the song, and I think Malcolmus at the time felt a little bit of worry about it. He's like, I don't want to start anything. Maybe we shouldn't keep this in the song, but he was persuaded against that. They, they put the song out, and... Uh, you know, I think the I think their thought at the time was that I'm sure they just assumed that Billy Corgan either wouldn't hear the song or he wouldn't care. But he did hear the song and he did care a lot. <laughs> yeah, an awful lot. He he was interviewed by David Frick in 1995, a year after the song came out, and uh, Frick asked him directly about the song, and Billy chalked it up to jealousy. And he said, you know, there's always been flack we've gotten from certain bands, the Mud Honeys, the pavements of this world, but somehow we cheated our way to the top, that we deceived the public to get where we're at. We have our own level of integrity that we've kept to, and we're not going away. So I think it's rooted in jealousy. And that's kind of where someone is looking at a picture and saying, this is where I belong, and I don't understand why I'm not there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so that's what, what Corgan is saying, is that these guys, these guys are just jealous. That's the only reason they're taking right. shots at me. I don't, everyone, everyone's, everyone's saying we cheated our way to get here, but, but no. Which, you by the way, I don't, I don't think Stephen Malcolmus for a second wanted to be in Smashing Pumpkins. Like, I don't think it was jealousy. Right. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, it's like he had his band, and he just had a totally different mindset. I, I, I don't think he could even imagine being a band like that. I was going to say, I always felt like... He Malcolm was very comfortable with his level of fame. I've never, I've never interviewed him. I, I know you have. I, did you ever get that impression? Like, it seemed like he was very happy with where he was and how things shook out. Yeah. I mean, again, like I can't claim to have too much knowledge of his inner life, but he exudes sort of a Zen like calm, like when you talk to him <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I don't get the sense that he like wishes that he was starring in black and white videos directed by Kevin Kerslake and, you know, <laughs> playing with like 50 piece orchestras. You know, that's, that just doesn't seem like that was something that he, he would have been into. Right. But Billy just he keeps twisting the knife. Another interview around the same time, he said, people don't fall in love to pavement. They put on Smashing Pumpkins or Hole or Nirvana because these bands actually mean something to them. Oh, man. Which is, that's a diss. You know, I mean, the line in uh, in Range Life, okay, maybe kind of, but but that's a diss right there. Yeah, and, you know, again, for the kids out there, I feel like we have to take a moment here to try to explain, like, what's going on here. Because, again, I feel like when you look back, this seems like the narcissism of small differences. You know, like the epitome of that. Because you have two bands, essentially, that are... On different levels, kind of, like Smashing Pumpkins was certainly selling more records than Pavement. But it's not like Pavement was like playing in, you know, dive bars for like three people every night. I mean, they were also on MTV. They were getting written up in all the big rock magazines. I think Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain sold like a couple hundred thousand records. Not as much as Siamese Dream or Melancholy, but still like a good number of records. And, you know, if they hadn't been at least a little bit famous, like no one would have cared about this song. Like the fact that pavement did have some prominence and was of course a critically adored band. It's what made this rivalry possible. So again, this idea that like smashing pumpkins and pavement were from totally different worlds and that somehow pavement was going after smashing pumpkins because they weren't successful enough. I think it made more sense at the time, but now it just seems kind of weird, especially now when there aren't even that many rock bands as popular as Pavement. Like, there's a lot of bands that would right. love to sell as many records as Pavement did in 1994. 
I mean, you're younger than me, Jordan. You were like a fetus, I think, when this whole thing was happening. Is this strange for you at all? Like, does this make sense that these bands were feuding? It's strange to me now because I, I just because I know how the story kind of ended and, and where both bands ended up. And it does seem like two completely different stratospheres. And I'm just wondering if almost at the time when it seemed like, you know, maybe Pavement were actually considered a sales threat and could eclipse Smashing Pumpkins. Like that maybe I could imagine. But yeah, it just feels like fighting over abstract ideals that don't really inhibit the enjoyment of any of these songs. Like I, I it's just such a, a classic example of like fans can like both, you know, it's not like I, a, a fan seeing themselves as one or the other necessarily in, in your, your Beatles and stones, your instincts versus Backstreet Boys kind of thing. It, it just feels like, again, just one guy who has a problem with one guy who really didn't mean that much harm. Yeah. I, I don't think that pavement was perceived like by Smashing Pumpkins as like a sales threat. I actually think it's the opposite. I think at that time, you know, the the indie politics of the 90s were that if you sold fewer records, in a way you were more legitimate. And that being the band that sold millions of records and was embraced by the mainstream, it was almost like a liability in terms of your credibility. So I think that is the thing that was just assumed at the time when they looked at, th at these two bands and it was like part of just the general understanding of like why they would be in conflict. That's been totally lost now. Like that context doesn't exist at all. Like people don't think that way. So I think it just makes it stranger maybe in retrospect than it was at the time. Like at the time it seemed logical that a band like pavement would, would make fun of smashing pumpkins. Um, but you know, for, for Malkmus, you know, he's been asked about this so many times over the years by journalists. And he's basically has said the same thing over and over where he, you know, talked about how it was just something that he did spur of the moment to make his friends in the band laugh. And that it wasn't necessarily meant to be an attack on Smashing Pumpkins or even a critique. He's even said that he liked some Smashing Pumpkins songs. Uh, it was just that this was the band that was on all the magazine covers in 1994. And if you were going to make a joke about a band, they were the obvious punchline, you know, and it wasn't even about their quality. It was more about their, their ubiquity at the time. And, you know, to me, the analogy I would make is like range life is almost like you're hanging out with your friends and saying snarky things at the person on the TV screen. And you're doing it to make your friends laugh. And you, and you don't think the person on the TV screen is actually going to hear you. You're just doing it because it's fun and he's on TV. And when someone has a lot of power, they're just an easy target. Um, but it wasn't anything personal. Uh, but, of course, Billy didn't and take like it that way. later on, too. Later on, too, when he did live versions of the song, didn't he substitute, like, the Spice Girls and Counting Crows in there for Smashing Pumpkins? Like, just to sort of show, like, no, this was a placeholder for whoever's big at this moment. Right, exactly. Which, by the way, I wish he would have like talked about Counting Crows in the originals song. That would have been amazing. <laughs> you could have gotten some good... I love Counting Crows, but you could get some good digs in on Adam Duritz, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I interviewed Stephen Malkmus about this specifically uh, many years ago, and he essentially said, like, you know, Smashing Pumpkins won. Like, they were really successful. They were more successful than we were. It's like, I don't know why he cared so much. You know, why, you know, you, you got everything that you would have wanted. You know, so what does it matter what we say? But Billy Corgan internalized this song almost immediately, I feel like. And it has caused him to lash out at Pavement for decades. Right. I mean, it, the fallout was kind of immediate. Um, Pavement were due to tour with Lollapalooza in 1994. But supposedly Smashing Pumpkins, who were the headliners, threatened to, to cancel their dates and pull out if Pavement performed. And so Pavement were kicked off the tour. Now, Corgan has denied this up and down for decades now. I don't know. I, I personally tend to believe it. What do you think? I mean, yeah, I would tend to believe it. It seems like his fingerprints were all over it. And certainly from Lollapalooza's perspective, if you had to book one of those bands, you would want to have Smashing Pumpkins because they would have been a bigger draw. So you, I would imagine that they had some power in that. Um, it's just funny to me, though, because like the band that ended up getting booked instead of Pavement was Guided by Voices, uh, who were on the same record label as Pavement, uh, Matador. And um, I did an interview recently with Tobin Sprout, the guitarist of Guided by Voices. And he was trying to remember like the name of the person that Guided by Voices got into a conflict with on the Lollapalooza tour. And he couldn't remember the person's name. He's like, yeah, that tall guy from Chicago. Like, what was his name? <laughs> and I'm like, 
oh, uh, Billy Corgan. And he's like, yeah, of course. And he told me that like Billy Corgan liked to play basketball backstage at Lollapalooza and uh, Robert Pollard and Jim Pollard played him one day and they got really aggressive. There's a lot of trash talking and Billy Corgan left because he lost. He stormed off and apparently he like had his own net that he carried around and he took the net <laughs> off the rim and he, he stormed off to his tour bus. And Tobin Sprout told me that later he found the net, like Billy Corgan's net, and he like threw it like into a field or something. Uh, so it's like, you know, like you get rid of one snarky indie rock band and then there comes another snarky indie rock band to, to mess with you. You know, it's like, like Billy Corgan just can't win. I mean, you feel bad. I mean, there are just, it seems like there's just like these like hip indie rock bands just lining up to torture this guy who's just like fumbling with the net who brings their own net first of all i've never even heard of that i don't know man i mean i feel a little bad for him i don't feel that bad for him i feel like he brings it on himself and he's gonna keep bringing yeah. it on himself with, with malcolmus i mean he keeps talking about it through the years right i mean malcolmus pavement broke up in 99 smashing pumpkins split for a bit in 2000 got back together in 06 and you think at this stage billy would be like you know I won. My band is, is alive and survived. Well, well, pavement bit the pavement. But and, and Malcolm has even said in an interview, I think it was in 2008 with Blender. Yeah, no, Billy's over it. It's fine. But um, but he was very much not over it. He uh, <laughs> of course did not. a reunion show. No, no. This is the part in the Arrested Development episode where the narrator said that Billy hadn't gotten over it. Uh, <laughs> right. Pavement reunited in, in 2010. And Billy finds out they're going to be sharing a bill at a festival in Brazil. And, and, and he's outraged. He posts this irate message to Twitter that I'd like to read in full. Oh, boy. Just found out Smashing Pumpkins is playing with Pavement in Brazil. It's going to be one of those New Orleans-type funerals. <laughs> I say that because they represent the death of the alternative dream, Ooh. and we follow the affirmation of life part. Ooh. Funny how those who point to the big finger of sellout are the biggest offenders now. Yawn, they have no love. By the way, we'll be the band up there playing new songs because we have the love. XX. Now, I always found this was a really interesting take for a guy who just recorded a song with Jessica Simpson for a VH1 reality show. That's right. Just, well, because he did that. He did that because he a, has the love. You know, he did that for love um, and, and not for anything else. I'm sure they didn't pay him at all for that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what I think is hilarious is, it, is that not even Billy Corgan in 2010 understood the difference between alternative rock and indie rock that even... Uh, a general of the alternative versus indie rock wars of the nineties, you know, could no longer discern the difference between these bands. He just sort of absorbed pavement into the alternative rock world 20 years later. Uh, it just, again, underscores the meaningless, how meaningless like a lot of this was, you know, after the fact. And his argument kind of doesn't make sense because two years later, he's still fuming about this. And he basically calls out Pavement in a bunch of interviews for being sellouts for reuniting on like a nostalgia tour. And, and he thinks that, you know, the, the, these grunge bands need to step up and take on the social issues of the day. And they're not. They're just making a cash grab, playing the old songs on the nostalgia circuit, which I don't know. He reunited his own band and kind of did the same thing. I mean, I guess he put out new albums, I suppose. But yeah, I I, I think it, he's his sense of self-importance is is kind of off the charts in this saying that you know yeah. grunge needs to come and, and tackle you know what's wrong the tea partiers or whatever is, is wrong with society's ills at this point yeah billy i love you but like the kids were not looking for you know filter to come back and write protest songs in the, in the 2010s you know like that was not what the world was looking for what the world was looking for from those bands at that time were for you to play the hits like that's what you right that's what they want you were you know and, and again, this kind of shows like how all bands that seem like they're polar opposites eventually end up in the same place. And like, you know, you could have Smashing Pumpkins and Pavement seemingly represent different ideals and different music scenes for people at the time. 20 years later, they're both essentially nostalgia acts. You know, they're on they're doing reunion tours and, you know, old people like me are coming out to go see them. And I saw both of these reunion tours. I saw the reunion tour for Pavement. In 2010, and I saw the Smashing Pumpkins reunion tour, which was a debacle in a lot of ways, but musically was pretty good. I mean, they they sounded good on those tours. Um, you know, people are just going out for a good time. You know, they they, they want to relive something that they loved 
when they were younger. You know, for me, like I never saw pavement in the nineties. So to see them in 2010 was, was pretty cool. Like to hear those songs being played and, and the same thing with smashing pumpkins. I mean, you know, I'll do respect to Billy Corgan. I wasn't going to hear Oceana deep cuts. You know, <laughs> I was going to hear Siamese dream hits and melancholy, the infinite sadness hits. Uh, and they delivered for me on that, on, on that level. So I appreciated that. But again, it kind of shows that like these bands that seem so different at one time, you know, ended up in the same place. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. It's funny to me, too, that at least before their 2018 reunion, I mean, the Billy Corgan fronted Smashing Pumpkins were almost the level of like, you know, one of those bands from the 60s that has like one remaining member. He's the sole member of the original Smashing Pumpkins. So it kind of that even kind of seems opportunistic in a way, you know, like those nostalgia bands that play like state fairs with like the original basis for, you know, I don't know, Dave Clark Five or something, you know? Right, exactly. And. That 2018 tour, I mean, I feel like people remember it because of Darcy, Darcy Retsky, who was going to be involved and then wasn't involved. And it just turned into this like public meltdown about, you know, them exchanging, you know, them sharing like their private texts with the, with the public and, you know, just showing how dysfunctional this band is. And again, making Billy Corgan look like an asshole. I mean, that was the, <laughs> that was the end result of, of that whole thing. So even like their big kind of, comeback where it was going to be all the original members like you know they couldn't pull that off and Malcolmus came for him for that too right wasn't he like kind of on the sidelines making fun of the whole train wreck that it became yeah like what yeah what did he say I mean because he was basically like saying like look you know you made fun of us for our reunion tour and now you're doing this sh- this tour basically just call him a hypocrite yeah and for the fact that you know he wasn't even not only was he a hypocrite but he's also seemingly screwing Darcy over too yeah right it's so funny to me that Billy was just so bothered by this semi-fight from a band who, you know, had a fraction of the commercial success that he had. You know, I think Crooked Rain got to like 121 on Billboard. And, 
Cut Your Hair made it into ro- in the rotation on MTV, but it's just, it's not the same. He's a better guitarist. He's writing objectively better songs. With much uh, well, well, I wouldn't say objectively uh, better uh-oh, songs. Uh-oh. I think that uh-oh. they're both great in their own way. But yes, you're right. I, I agree that it's insane that he let this get to him as much as it did. And it didn't just have like a sense of humor about it. I, I have this theory. I don't know. I want to see if you think it holds water. I have this theory that Billy Corgan is the Larry David of uh, 90s indie rock. <laughs> okay. And the, the, the comparison is as follows. I mean, there's obvious similarities in the hair department, but beyond that, their actions are motivated almost entirely out of spite and grudges and insecurity, but it pushes them to do like objectively great things. I mean, you've got Siamese Dream and Melancholy on Billy's side. You have Latte Larry's for Larry David. Now, <laughs> right. they're, they're ruled by this rigid code of ethics and conduct that just sort of exists in their own mind and they don't like share it with anyone until there's a transgression made, usually a really innocent transgression. At what point the rule is just stated ad nauseum at a very high volume and they're just berated. And this makes them wildly unpopular socially and usually very unpleasant to be around, possibly because despite their extreme and often really inappropriate overreactions, they still see themselves, no matter what, as the victim, which is infuriating when you've reached that level of success. They each have these remarkable achievements in their past, Seinfeld and Smashing Pumpkins, that, you know, you can't write them off entirely, no matter how irritating they are. And, and they both also date women who are way out of their league, Jessica Simpson and Cheryl Hines. There, that's my theory. <laughs> I like that theory. I will say that, like, Larry David on Kirby Enthusiasm, he's always surrounded by friends. Like, as negative right. as he is, that's true. a lot of people like Larry. And I don't know if that's true of Billy. Like, I feel like Larry, uh, there's a lovability to his cantankerousness. Like, I love Larry David. I love how cranky he is because when he lashes out at people, you feel like they deserve it. And he's acting in a way that you wish you could act if you didn't have the social skills that you have. But it's like, yeah, we you, you would love to tell, you know, the person who's annoying in your life how annoying they are and, 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 and to not put on sort of the niceties that we're all forced to put on. Whereas I feel like with Billy Corgan, he's not doing that. I feel like he lashes out at people uh, that don't deserve it and it makes him less likable. So that would be my one qualm with that. Although I like the Cheryl Hines, Jessica Simpson parallel. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, for me, however, I feel like the, the, the analogy I always come back to is Richard Nixon. I think Billy Corgan is Ooh. Richard Nixon. And I wrote about this a lot in in, in my book because I feel like it's really, I think, the key to understanding uh, who Billy Corgan is. Um, I read this great book uh, by Rick Perlstein called Nixon Land. It's a classic book. I don't know if you've ever read it. Um, but he talks in that book about how when Richard Nixon was in college, he formed this group called the Authorgonians. And it was a group, it was a social group for students who couldn't get into the exclusive fraternity on campus which was known as the Franklins. And the ideology behind the, the Authorgonians was that we are the real people. We're the real kind of salt of the earth students at this school. And we're being put down by the elites and the Franklins. And We are the silent majority. We are the silent majority, essentially. Exactly. So Pearlstein uses this anecdote to explain basically Richard Nixon's political career, that this is something that he went back to time and again, that he appealed to people's sense of insecurity and persecution, that there was always someone out there doing better than them, putting them down. And if only those people didn't exist, then I would have a perfect life and I wouldn't have any problems. And I feel like Billy Corgan has that same worldview. I think he has, I think he sees himself as someone who comes from good mid- Midwestern stock that he works his butt off. And, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. If you look at his output in the nineties, the amount of songs that he was writing, like around the time of melancholy, which is a double album that spawned like a six disc box set of B sides. I think there's like 50 B sides or so, maybe more that he yeah. wrote around that time, just an incredible amount of output and a really high ba- batting average at that time. Like a lot of those songs are really good. Um, and he's playing all the parts for the most part, right? Except yeah. for like Jimmy, Jimmy's drums. Exactly. So he, and he's a perfectionist in the studio. He's a really great guitarist. Um, and yet 
critics gravitated to pavement, which again, you know, you could say had maybe more of an exclusive following. It was a more discerning following. You know, they weren't as popular, but again, as I was saying, because of the indie politics at the time, it kind of made them more appealing to people because, you know, the people that like Smashing Pumpkins, you could say broadly, you know, like the jocks at school, like Smashing Pumpkins, like everyone likes Smashing Pumpkins, but only a select few people. We, I guess we'll just call them Franklins. The Franklins liked pavement. <laughs> the Orthogonians like Smashing Pumpkins. And to even carry that analogy further, I feel like Malcolmus has like some JFK like qualities, you know, because it, like if you think about that like 1960 debate between Nixon and Kennedy, that historic debate that people always give credit for, you know, being a big breakthrough and how uh, politicians are presented on television, you know. JFK looked amazing, looked immaculate, and Nixon was like, you know, looked sweaty. Like he had, he sweaty, looked like he had a shadow, he wasn't wearing any makeup. And um, I think Malkmus had that same sort of thing where he was good looking, he was charismatic, and he didn't have that awkwardness that Billy Corgan has that can be off putting. And I'm sure he looked at someone like Malkmus, or like you said before, like Kurt Cobain or Chris Cornell or Eddie Vedder, and just was mad that it seemed like they weren't working as hard as he was. Although, again, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think everyone else was working hard, too. They just didn't make a point of foregrounding their hard work, you know, in the same way that he did. Like, you know, he worked hard and he made sure that you knew it, you know, that he was writing all the right. songs and he was playing all the parts. And like, I'm the guy, I'm doing everything. And that's a big part of his identity. I'm yeah, I mean, I, I'm succeeding on every level that I should on paper, but they still hate me. Why do they hate me? What else can I do? What else can I give? I mean, I th that line, I think, could be said by either one of them, Nixon or Billy. Right, exactly. And it's interesting, too, because when you think that way, you can present yourself as an underdog, even when you are hugely successful. Like, I think there was always an underdog element to Nixon, you know, because he felt like he was an outsider and he didn't have maybe the family connections that someone like JFK had. Well, the Ivy League stuff. Or the Ivy League like stuff. Even though like college in California. Even though he yeah. had been vice president, you know, even though he had been a politician <laughs> for many decades before he was finally elected president in 1968. Um, I think the same thing is true with, with, with Billy Corgan. I mean, like, and you step back and it's like, in no way was he an underdog, you know, really. Like, Smashing Pumpkins was like pretty successful from the beginning and they had a lot of industry support, you know, from pretty early on. Um, but because of people like Malcolmus, Corgan could always feel that, well, I'm not getting the same kind of respect that he's getting. And, so, and, and in some respects, that is, this is making my career harder. I mean, because there were so many other people, too, that were also taking shots at Billy Corgan at that time. Yeah, we mentioned Kim Gordon, Steve Albini had that incredible it was, it was like an open letter right he wrote this like open letter that he called smashing pumpkins frauds bullshit and he also called them reo speed wagon <laughs> right yes exactly yeah i think bob mold called him i uh, called them like the grunge monkeys which <laughs> is funny i mean it's not really true though i mean i don't think that they were like, yeah no like prefabricated like that but yeah i mean i think with, with corgan as he starts to really internalize this underdog thing, it coincides like with Smashing Pumpkins basically starting to go into decline, like after Melancholy. And, you know, they put out A Door in 1997, which I think is actually like a pretty good record. I do too. And everyone always, yeah, I agree. But it didn't have as many hits as like the previous records. And also like mu the music scene was just changing too at that time. I mean, th that's like when new metal was really starting to come in and really like none of the you know, big alternative rock bands of the early 90s were really able to do well in that era. So, like, at that point, not only is Billy Corgan feeling like he's not getting the respect he deserves, now he's not even having the same amount of success. Right, and it's just, you know, it, it's heartbreaking. He had this incredible line that really just sort of lays it all out there. He said, I wish from day one people would have looked at me and said, you're all right, come on, join the team. But it's never been that way with me. I don't know why. Maybe I'm a dick. It shows. I don't know. Right. But they did ask him to join the team. I mean, again, I, I feel like 
it's it's just interesting like how success ends up getting defined i guess i mean i think it is true that a lot of other rock stars at the time didn't like him and they made it clear that they didn't like him but at the same time i again it's just sort of amazing how the worldview ends up making what you think is true actually true you know like if he hadn't thought of himself as this sort of put upon outsider would he have ended up as a put upon outsider you know is the question with him i think and it's funny too how in a lot of interviews he goes out of his way to sort of credit artists that were hugely successful commercially but just were absolutely ravaged by the critics at the height of their fame bands like queen black sabbath led zeppelin and you know like sees himself as one of them i always felt yeah there's that uh he's actually like one of the best people that's interviewed in the rush documentary beyond the lighted stage and uh in in the way that he talks about how rush didn't get the critical appreciation that he felt that he deserved and uh you know he says like you know they were really a people's band the great hole in their career is that they'd never been truly accepted by the intelligentsia what was it they just didn't fit in a neat box and I just felt like every quote in that movie that's ostensibly about Rush from Billy Corgan is actually about himself. Like To me, that's a quote about himself. And I think that's just because he has a hard time maybe looking beyond his own grievances, his own like way of like how he feels that the world has not treated him well. Um, what I think is funny, too, is that Stephen Malkmus also really likes Rush. Like, I don't know if you know that. Like He's talked about that in interviews. About how much no, you know, I didn't know that he's talked about Rush. He's talked a lot about like about classic rock bands. I remember I saw an interview like where he talked about how much he liked the band Chicago, especially like their early records. And it just kind of incredible. It just goes to show that like you know these are like two middle aged guys that like were uh, you know part of Generation X, and I think probably liked a lot of the same music. And if they could actually get together. Or if they didn't have any of this baggage, I just wonder like if they could have been friends, like in some other reality. Oh yeah, they're definitely more alike than they are different. They go, you know, go over to one of their houses, put on twenty five or six to four, and uh, just kick back. Yeah, no, I and and Billy said similar things about like he he slagged off Radiohead for their pomposity and said, you know, I I'm more of a rainbow deep purple guy, and and you know, I I think Richie Blackmore is just as valid as uh, as Johnny Greenwood. And yeah, it's the same deal too. He's he's talking about himself. He's 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 putting in the place of sort of the critical favorites and talking about what he sees as sort of the people's band, the silent majority's band. Right. You know, and it's interesting to me, and I alluded to this earlier, but like it's interesting like where he takes that worldview as he enters middle age, because you know, it's one thing to to be mad at music critics or, you know, the members of Pavement or Sonic Youth. But you can really see that like it started to affect him politically in some way. And I I I just go back to his appearance on Alex Jones in twenty twelve. I don't know if you've ever seen that video. But it's like pretty, it's pretty weird. I mean, because he ends up talking a lot about how the media distorts the truth and keeps people down, you know, which is something that I think he probably would have said about, you know, people that write for spin in like the nineties. But now he's talking about like the news media and he goes on this riff about how TV has castrated the American male. That uh, you know that you can't see real men on television anymore. And well, what's he defining that as? Like, I, I mean, is he I mean like Duck Dynasty? Like, what's he talking about? I don't know what that means. It just blows me away that this is the guy that wrote Disarm. You know, like he wrote again. Like, I used to be a little boy. Like, this is like one of the most quotable lines in Billy <laughs> Corgan's songbook. And now he's talking about the American male uh, being uh, being castrated. Um, it's just crazy, and you know. And again, I think when you look at Corgan and Malkmus as sort of contrasting figures, and you said it earlier, talking about like Billy Corgan being like the try-hard guy who's going to show you how hard he's working and, and, and sees himself as like a man of the people, essentially. And you can see like how that really turns bad as he gets older. And it, it turns into sort of like this dark populism almost that you see on things like Alex Jones. And then Malkmus... On the other side, who, again, I think his image is, a, is of someone who doesn't care and is laid back. 
but I think it's actually worked pretty hard over the course of, you know, these past 30 years to establish a career in indie rock, you know, where he's successful, but he's not hugely successful, but he's also been able to carve out his own niche in a way that I think is actually pretty hard to do. And I don't know if you would actually maybe want to make the argument that he is more of a real populist in a way than Billy Corgan is. Like if you want to call someone an elite, I think you can make the argument that Billy Corgan in a way is an elite much more than, than the Stephen Malkmus is, especially now with the benefit of all this hindsight that we have. Yeah. I mean, he certainly exists in a really elite stratosphere of, of, of rock stars. I mean, and even just their personas too. I mean, Malcolmus seems to have no persona. He just sort of seems like, a guy who, like you said, just falls out of, his, uh, bed, out of bed and writes great songs. He seems to have no image. Whereas Billy Corgan just seems to really get off on playing Billy Corgan, you know, with like the Zero shirts and Nosferatu pancake makeup and the hair and these Alex Jones contrarian interviews and all the wrestling stuff he's been doing. Like, I think you alluded to this in your book, but like, what's the deal with Midwest artists morphing into like these bizarre self-caricatures? You've got Michael Jackson, Axl Rose. Prince to a certain degree, Billy Corgan. Yeah, I, I think it's just that idea. I think it goes back to the chip on the shoulder, the idea that I'm in flyover country. There's nothing inherently glamorous about me or where I'm from. So I have to construct glamour. You know, I have to construct an image. I can't just be myself because who I actually am is not very interesting or it's boring. And that's worked for a lot of people. Um, and I think it can be a positive thing. But with Billy, it just seems like it's turned into this like fitfully self-aware, like wrestling heel type persona, you know, like where he enjoys <laughs> annoying people, but at the same time really wants their affection. You know, it's like if you're going to be a good heel, you have to genuinely not care that people hate you. And I don't think that's ever been true of Billy Corgan. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. <laughs> My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. He came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. It's always interesting to me. I wonder how much it pisses Billy Corgan off that Pavement haven't released a new album in, you know, 20 plus years at this point. 
And their reputation has just grown and grown and grown exponentially since they were a live active band. And Billy's out there working his ass off, putting out all these new albums, doing all these tours. And I wouldn't argue it's necessarily shrinking, but it's definitely not producing the same dividends that, that Pavement is within their re- legacy and reputation. It's just, I, I wonder how he feels about that. I'm sure not good. Well, you know, I actually feel like the reputation of the great Smashing Pumpkin records, which, I, you know, Siamese Dream and Melancholy and The Infinite Sadness, I feel like that's pretty bulletproof. Um, and I do mean literally bulletproof because, like, Billy Corgan has, like, shot bullets into his legacy over and over and over again and he hasn't been able to kill it yet you know that's how good those records are i think that now it's almost like people have to separate their love of those records from billy corgan you know there's a lot of people i think that still listen to those albums that think that billy corgan is a bit of a doofus you know but like they aren't going to let that get in the way of enjoying those records i mean he he i feel like the case for billy corgan is, is a lot easier than maybe just this is my own bias than than the one for malcolmus but if you were going to make a case for why malcolmus is, is is better than uh corgan or at least the pro malcolmus case what would what would you say well first of all i think that uh you know i in the case of range life i don't think that he was trying to start uh you know a 25 year blood feud with Billy Corgan. You know, I really think that it was a spontaneous gesture that made his friends laugh and that he saw as harmless. And I think it is harmless on its own. Um, it's just that he was dealing with someone who again is just, you know, maybe the most insecure person ever, uh, to be a rock star. Uh, and that says a lot because there's a lot of insecure rock stars, but it's hard for me to think of someone more deserving of that title than Billy Corgan. Um, I think it's funny too. I always think about Stone Temple Pilots. You know, we, we we were talking about them earlier, the elegant bachelors thing. Like they never really reacted to it that I'm aware of. I mean, they certainly didn't, you know, maybe they talked about it in private or, or mentioned in an interview here or there, but it, it didn't become as tied to them as it did to Smashing Pumpkins just because like, like Scott Weiland, I, I don't think he ever really complained about it. And even like when Scott Weiland died, Pavement, went on their Facebook page and they paid tribute to Scott Weiland. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but they wrote this post that said, rest peacefully, Scott Weiland. In no way, shape, or form did we ever want to add to your misery. Which is like... Oh, wow. Kind of funny. That's, uh, I mean, it's classy. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of strange. But, um, and again, you know, and I said this earlier, this whole dichotomy between like the try-hard Billy Corgan and like the slacker Stephen Malcolmus, I think that's kind of a false dichotomy. And you can see that in how their careers have played out. Stephen Malcolmus has actually, I think, put out like a lot more albums than than Billy Corgan has over the course of like these last several decades. And he's, you know, just continued to be like a very prolific artist. Um, and doing it again on a level where he doesn't have the kind of luxuries that Billy Corgan has. Uh so I think in a way, again, you could make a case that Stephen Malcolmus is the true populist and Billy Corgan is the elitist. So that would be my case, I guess, for for Malcolmus. I don't know if any of that makes sense to you. No, it does. I mean, it might. I think because I I just came at them from such a different place, too, that I didn't really see the, the need to. To pit them against one another until actually going back and learning about this, too, because I, I came to pavement a lot later in Smashing Pumpkins because just from where I lived in the in the sticks in Massachusetts, like you weren't getting really many stores that carried pavement albums, to be honest with you. And you didn't really hear much on the radio. Maybe you'd see the one song on MTV or something like that too. So yeah, I I just I enjoy their music. I enjoy his solo stuff too. I really I think that he's I think I like probably a greater collection of Malcolm's songs than Billy's at this point. The last couple of Smashing Pumpkins albums I haven't been able to get into at all, whereas I still think Malcolmus is... What was it, his most recent album? I'm trying to remember what it was called. Traditional um, Techniques. It was from earlier this year, right? That's the one from earlier this year? Yeah, yeah. It's a folky record. It's really great. Wait, there was one before that I also really liked. Anyway, yeah, I just... I, I think that, that he's consistently maintained great output, whereas Billy, I, I don't feel it as much. But again, maybe that's just because I know too much about him, you know? 
Well, it's interesting that you said that it's easier for you to make a pro Billy case, which I feel like it's harder to make a pro Billy Corkin case in this instance. But like, what, like, what would be your case for him? I mean, I totally understand that Stephen Malcolmus is certainly much happier, better adjusted of these two. And I don't care. I, I sort of have this fondness for like the slightly unhinged lone figure with this like ridiculous ambition. You know, if it's Howard Hughes, if it's Rocky, if it's Brian Wilson, even if it's just folly, I just admire it. It's like Don Quixote or something. I admire the guts. I admire the vision. I admire the passion. I admire the naked earnestness. I, probably because I see myself in that, in, in, and I don't mean that in a positive way, but in a, in a realistic way. I just, I, I relate to that. And to see someone just sort of go for it, even if it's awkward and even if they look, you know, weird doing it, it's just inspiring. You know, even if they are a dumpster fire of a human being, which you know, is usually the case when you mix like ruthless ambition with sort of an unstable personality. You get your Phil Spectors, you get your Brian Wilsons, you get your Hitlers. It, but but it's it, his music is so compelling to me. It's just so grandiose. The fifty guitar parts and just the image of him sort of alone doing it. I, I first learned about um, Billy Corgan in a in a Brian Wilson documentary, and he he was just talking about his admiration for Brian Wilson, and he was talking about Brian doing Pet Sounds and how he 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 stepped out from his band, stepped out from his family to make the music that he wanted to hear. That's not genius. That's just guts of the words he said. And I always, it always stuck with me. And that's what I always think of when I think of him, I, you know, I, I, that I admire. And even if it's wrong, which in, I'm not saying that he's been the most uh, easy to get along with bandmate or anything like that. But in addition to his commercial superiority, which, you know, obviously helped define the sound of nineties mainstream rock. And the fact that I just think I love his songs more, I just give him the edge for probably the really the very thing that a lot of people dinged him for, which is his ambition. Yeah, I I don't agree with that, I guess. I don't think they dinged him for his ambition. I think people love his ambition. And I, I, and the, the case I would make is very similar to yours. I love him when he's really grandiose and it's actually working, you know. Like I would mm. say that like Pavement overall, I prefer their catalog. I think they have a more consistent body of work. But the peaks for Smashing Pumpkins are better than Pavement's peaks. And again, Siamese Dream and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness are like two amazing records that I love. The reason why people don't like Billy Corgan is because of himself, because of his personality, because he's a jerk a lot of the time. And he's obnoxious a lot of the time. And it pains me to say that because I respect him as an artist, but he really is his own worst enemy. And, you know, if he didn't, say so many just stupid things really an obnoxious thing is if he didn't go on alex jones and trade conspiracy theories and all these other things yeah, that was weird he people would like him because i think people love his music and there even Stephen malkmus has said nice things about his music um but i think his personality gets in the way and I'm saying this in the context of a defense of Billy Corgan. So like, I feel like I'm just criticizing him more, <laughs> but I'll say again, I think on artistic grounds, his best work ranks with the best rock of the nineties. And you can't write a history of alternative rock without a chapter on Smashy pumpkins. And with him, I just prefer to focus on the work because if I think about him too much, it ends up detracting from my admiration from what he's created. So, in terms of these two guys together, I think we've hit upon this already where it's not really like a classic rivalry in the sense of where you feel like it's a 50-50 thing. It really was one inciting incident from Pavement and then Billy Corrigan internalizing that for a long time afterward. Um, I feel like this is maybe more interesting for us as fans. And I'm a fan of both of these bands. And... I like just thinking about these two guys as characters and how they stand in contrast with each other. And in a way you feel like you can understand something about the other guy by looking at this guy's faults, you know, or this guy's attributes. Um, they really are sort of like a yin and yang in a way of, of nineties indie and alternative music. I think in a lot of ways too, we also tend to dislike or resent the people that we see a lot of the things 
we don't like in ourselves, which I guess negates the, my my whole defense of Billy Corgan as I see a lot of myself <laughs> in that in his behavior. But yeah, it, it's funny how you, you think that these two guys, if they could just put aside the differences, they actually would have a lot more in common than not, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, they have, they have things in common, um, except one guy seems comfortable in his own skin and the other one absolutely does not. And that's how you end up. Sometimes you just need one guy who is kind of surly to have a fight. And that's what you have here. Uh, but Jordan, I just want you to know that uh, while you are a nature kid, I think you do have a function. <laughs> and you are a very elegant. Well, you're not a bachelor, but you're very elegant. And I oh, mean that. Steven, I, I appreciate that. I mean that with all the love in my Steven, heart. Today is the greatest day I've ever known, Steven. That really, that, that means a lot to me. You say that. All right, everybody. Well, this has been another episode of Rivals. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more conflicts and beefs next week. (laughs) Gonna go listen to Siamese Dream now. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school. Like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.